0: Hello from the library here at Artsy HQ in downtown Manhattan. Welcome to the second ever Artsy podcast. We made it to two. Joining me for this occasion is deputy editor, Alex Forbes. Hey Alex. Hey Isaac, how's it going? And a little later, well, it's good, thank you. A little later, we'll be joined by Tess Thackra, our senior editor. You'll know she's here when you start hearing a British accent. So how how are you recovering from Armory Week? I know it was a little over a week ago, but these things are like, they make an impact.
1: Yeah, it was good. It was good. Um, I think it actually took me a week to get back on track, yeah, and uh, but now it's kind of game on, headed towards Hong Kong. You leave sa- Saturday night, at, like, or I guess Sunday morning at one a.m. How long is that flight? Sixteen hours.
0: Okay. Wow. Well, at least you'll have you know you'll be able to listen to the podcast on the plane, so that'll be nice.
1: Sixteen times. No, actually, <laughs> way more 30, than that. thirty-two times. Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay, so we have one of the most divergent shows today with two polar ends of the art world. First thing. Uh, it's March, and the art world has shaken off its New Year's hangover. Art fairs are in full swing. We just talked about the Armory Show, um, Art Basel in Hong Kong. The, organize- the organization behind Art Basel has announced they'll be purchasing smaller regional fairs, which is an interesting move, and hovering above all of this is the TAFOF report, um, which, if you don't know, looks at the economic health of the art market. So we'll be talking about that. Is it up? Is it down? Alex, you'll give your insights. After that, we'll look at what our editor Tess Thakura has dubbed big art history in an article written last month, where she looked at exhibitions that link art through time and this sort of growing trend towards novel, really expansive uh, curated art historical exhibitions. We'll talk a little bit about if this is historical revisionism, how it lets us kind of approach art in new ways and the potential pitfalls and limitations. Um, These kind of big art history exhibitions are appearing all over, even at the new Met location, the Met Breuer. And then, of course, it's where in the art world will you be drinking white wine this week? (laughs) Where we'll be talking about what we're looking forward to doing in the art world. All right, well, let's get into it. As I mentioned, the Tefaf Report kind of trickled out last week, uh, as you might have seen if you're following the flurry of articles about it. For those who don't know, it's a major annual report commissioned by the European Fine Art Foundation, organizers of the European Fine Art Fair, and put together by an economist named Claire McAndrew. It's full of charts and graphs and juicy information, and it's maybe the most, well, definitely the most robust, holistic look at the art market and how it's been doing. So, Alex, how how is the art market? Well... The
1: art market's down okay. for the first time since 2011. It's down 7% last year to $63.8 billion in 2015 compared to $68.2 billion in 2014. I don't think that's going to come as a huge surprise to anyone. Mm-hmm. Starting in kind of Q3, Q4 of last year, we really saw a slow contraction both in kind of the gross volume of auction sales um, by value and... Uh, you know, other indicators across the market um, that things were starting to slow down, that goes in step with global markets cooling slightly. Right. Um, is it a correction? Is it a market collapse? That's open for debate. I <laughs> probably would not say it's a market collapse. You know, I think there's been a lot of kind of frothy headlines over the past few months about the bubble bursting, and that's probably too extreme assessment of things. Bright side of that, the U.S. market was up 4%, $27.3 billion worth of art being sold in the U.S. last year, totally the most dominant marketplace in the world, more or less the only region in the world that increased in its market share last year.
0: Well, it was interesting to see in your Armory show report, you kind of, that was sort of the theme of, of foreign collectors and foreign dealers kind of finding shelter in the U.S. art market. And that was totally borne out by this report, which sort of says, yeah, the U.S. art market is is much stronger than the rest of the world.
1: Absolutely. And I mean, I think it's something that we've seen for a number of years now, whether on the auction side, the, the business conditions are a lot more favorable mm-hmm. in the U.S., selling a lot, selling work of art here, especially a very expensive work of art, you'll end up getting more money for it, both in terms of the amount it will sell for and in terms of the kind of fees and and regulations around it. But also, you know, just from an economic perspective, um, New York in particular hasn't quite felt the contraction that other markets around the world have, um, be that in, you know, emerging markets like China, Brazil, or even Europe.
0: I mean, in your experience, do you think that an art market contraction in New York would come before a broader economic contraction? Like, does it portend bad things? Or does the art market follow usually on pace or slightly behind the, the larger economy? Or is it just impossible to say? Well, it's hard to say.
1: The art market does, of course, follow broader economic trends. In the 2008 collapse, uh, we did see a contraction in the art market then. It bounced back more quickly than people expected it to. And it, and it didn't go as low as, as you might have expected it to, and as other kind of asset classes did. And that's due to the fact that during times of economic instability, the kind of global ultra high net worth individual group does flock to alternative asset classes like art as a store of value that would particularly be seen in like kind of the impressionist modern side of the market where things are a lot more kind of stable in terms of their values and we're seeing that in the tafaf report and we'll see that again over the next couple of years but in terms of kind of the primary market where people are you know coming back to the US from you know galleries that that exist abroad and in climates that aren't as economically stable you know i think we have been at least up until this point relatively isolated from the the really significant tremors that you're seeing in China and Brazil the chinese market was down 23% last year which is really really significant i mean their economy is is having a really hard time
0: yeah i mean it's interesting because the conversation is can the american economy at large sort of withstand these, these troubles that we're seeing in China and I think the question is sort of similar for the art market as well
1: maybe I mean I think the, the art market is certainly less dependent on China than other uh, markets China is the third biggest art market now the mm-hmm. UK is now in second place We'll see, and and what that fluctuation really means, I think, is still up for debate. Right. The the data around that is is a little bit more clouded than it might be. Yeah, elsewhere. I think in
0: your report you said that they had either experienced a seven percent slowdown or a one per, like growth was at seven percent or it was at one percent, and no one was really sh- like no one really knows what the actual figure is.
1: Yeah, I mean, I th- I think it's something that that economists like to debate around whether mm-hmm. it's due to the way in which their currency is pegged, you know, the general black box around some elements of their economy. That, that's always kind of a hotly debated subject. On the art market side, what does that exactly mean? Is it people buying less art because the economy is contracting? Does it have more to do with crackdowns on the so-called elegant bribery that Xi Jinping has brought about, um, which have seen kind of on the middle market side of things, volumes cool down?
0: Is there any other kind of numbers that hop out at you from the report that you want to that, that stood out to you while you were reading this, like over one hundred page document. I think one of the really interesting things that the report
1: um, highlighted this year, and and you know it's something it's a trend that we've seen over the past few years, but particularly interesting this year was that despite this seven percent contraction in the market at large, the online art market expanded by seven percent. You know that's not as large of an increase as we've seen the year before, but it's really interesting to see that. Despite overall values going down, the kind of low end of the market, middle market that the online market services is having some kind of strength, or at least people are buying more art online. Mm-hmm. You know, I think in terms of having a sustainable art market in the long term, I think mean, this really top heavy. I mean, there's there's some crazy statistics about you know, and I guess it's it mirrors a lot of what's happening in the economy at large. But you know, the one percent and point oh one or and point one percent of artworks in terms of the, the sales value that they achieve, have an, a remarkable share of the overall art market's value creation. And so to see something like the online sector, which caters more to works, you know, let's say under 50,000, creeping up above that now, that could help stabilize things in yeah. the long term.
0: So the middle class is hurting in the art world. Is that... <laughs> the middle <laughs> class of Bernie's people rhetoric. who
1: can uh who can afford fifty thousand write- dollar
0: write- right right yeah. in, in a in a relative world right so i i was reading a little bit about this online and, and i stumbled on this critique by a guy named tim schneider and he said that in the land of the data blind the one-eyed statistician is king kind of critiquing the methodology of the tafaf report which only talks to some you know 13 percent of the total galleries anonymously blah 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 is this like a Valid critique? Should we doubt the accuracy of the report or.?
1: I think it's a critique you get every time this report comes out by one person or another. You know, there are certainly some parts of that argument that are not invalid. Um, But (laughs) it depends. Whoa,
0: don't rush to endorse it. (laughs) Slow down. down.
1: But depending on, like, you know, the art market is so opaque that what's our best analogy to the reality, and I think it, it is this report. Claire McAndrew is a phenomenal economist and does a lot of work and has been doing this for a very long time. And is, if anything, very conservative in the conclusions that she'll jump to. Other reports that are out there have much more kind of bullish expansion figures about different sectors of, of the market. So I feel like if anything, we can kind of be relatively confident that this is kind of a, maybe not worst case scenario, but a really realistic depiction
0: of things. So amid this kind of downtick in the art market, you know, Sotheby's lost 11 million dollars last quarter. Their CEO, Ted Smith, is already lowering expectations for the first two quarters of 2016. MCH Group, which is this conglomerate that owns the Art Basel franchise of art fairs. And a number of other. And a number a, of, of other. Of, of,
1: of, other events. It's a live marketing firm, essentially.
0: On March 4th, they announced that they're going to be setting up A bunch of regional fairs and this is sort of an expansion in a time of uncertainty at very best and contraction at the at the worst so this sort of seems counterintuitive why maybe isn't it
1: so what the mch group is doing and and just to clarify these regional fairs won't have any relationship to art basel itself it's just the the same kind of parent company but they are going to be acquiring or going to joint partnerships with or potentially creating new regional art fairs it would maybe seem counterintuitive, but I think that the biggest opportunity here is is kind of a very dry economics term, but like economies of scale mm-hmm. um, you know you have now galleries around the world participating in five, ten, fifteen, maybe even some more art fairs around the world every year, and that's a pretty inefficient process and the individual who'll head up this division Marco Fazzone told me essentially that they're not yet ready to announce specifics with regard to to how they might do this but i think one of the a couple of the interesting implications is that they could kind of share back office services so that brings down the cost of the fares hopefully that could be transferred over to galleries and on the individual gallery basis there's a possibility maybe down the line where they could buy subscriptions to a number of different art fairs throughout the year maybe those art fairs offer bulk shipping services from one fair to the next right. and that will you know ideally lower the cost for galleries and and help them be profitable over time
0: so there, there sort of seems to be a trend in the art world looking at Sotheby's purchase of art agency partners for example towards kind of a more service growth through services growth through like these sort of and, and Art Agency Partners, I should say, is is a, a firm that kind of works with buyers to, to smooth the process out.
1: They were a very like, high-end art
0: advisory. And they were just purchased by Sotheby's, and now you have this sort of potential for economies of scale at galleries. Is this the next place where growth in the art market can come from? I mean, this sort of, s- not I don't want to say service industry, but...
1: There, there is an element of that. I think that it's a good insight. You know, in order for the art market to grow, a lot of that growth is going to have to come from bringing new individuals into the fold. And one of the best ways to do that is to not have it operate like this this kind of legacy industry, but to really operate how other industries and other businesses operate in the world. You know, and whether that's from Tad Smith at Sotheby's, bringing about a much more kind of business-minded organization um, to to that firm, or someone like Art Basel trying to bring some kind of efficiencies, or MCH Group trying to bring some efficiencies to the regional art fair space, fairs thinking a lot more about the environment in which their clients can, can operate in, that will hopefully, I mean, I think that's the bet, will bring in new buyers into the space.
0: Well, all right. And now for something completely different, opposite pole of the art world. We're joined now by Tess Thacker, our senior editor. Hi, Tess. Hi, Isaac. Uh, You published what I would call an important article at the end of February that makes the argument for what you've dubbed big art history. And I'm just going to read a paragraph in case our listeners don't know what you are talking about. Several museum exhibitions set to open in the coming months demonstrate a growing art world proclivity towards grand narratives. Curators and art historians, it seems, are becoming ever more ambitious in setting out to capture the bigger picture drawing a line across geographies, periods, and practices. Okay, so, in other words, what's big art history?
2: So, big art history is, uh, or rather, big art history exhibitions are ones that encompass very large time spans and also multiple different modes of cultural production. So, for example, in uh, one of the exhibitions I talk about in the piece at the Vancouver Art Gallery, it's looking at mashed up culture across the whole of the 20th century and incorporating everything from music to architecture to painting, all sorts of different things.
0: So you did coin the term big art history. Congratulations. Thank you. But (laughs) it does come from a idea by Bill Gates, kind of big history. Yeah, the big history project. Yeah, so maybe can you touch on where that came from? But also, is this a new thing? Is big art history new or?
2: So yeah, so it's not actually Bill Gates's project. The Big Art History Project was founded by a man called David Christian, sort of his brainchild, but Bill Gates has picked it up and is advocating for it and promoting it across schools in the United States. And the idea is basically to look at something like 13.8 billion years of history. So not treating history as these discrete periods of time, but making connections across massive expanses of time
0: sounds like more fun than history class as yeah, i think remember so. it
2: my one history class back in the day that covered american history was about prohibition and that was like my one
0: not the american war of independence no americans <laughs> only care about alcohol yeah that's it <laughs> that, that was your that was your take and, and then you decided to move from. exactly <laughs> So anyway, so it, is big art history a new phenomenon within the art world? Not. I
2: think, yeah, I think it's new that we're seeing exhibitions of this scope open with such frequency. I point to four examples of this in my piece, but, you know, I'm not suggesting that this is a sea change. I'm suggesting that there has been a shift in perspective that is incremental and I think it's a result of numerous factors that you can point to I think you know you can look at postmodern theory in the late 20th century as sort of doing away with a linear narrative and a concept of history as a linear evolution Mm -hmm. Um, and then you can think about the internet and the fact that we now have the entire history of the world at our fingertips and kind of Thinking about the way that that opens up the imagination to make connections across time.
0: So, is there an element to big art history that's like revising the canon? Are we like, is this historical revisionism? I think. If that sc- sounds it's like a scary term, but. Slightly
2: a chicken and egg thing. I think right. that we are in a cult, there is a culture of revisionism now, which is why we're seeing so many women artists from the 60s and 70s who are underrecognized, who are being surfaced. Now we're seeing lots of historical African-American artists who are being ushered into the canon. I think there is a climate of of revisionism that has enabled this kind of expansive, inclusive thinking about art history.
1: Well, and what I found so exciting about this piece and this this idea in general is its power to kind of make art that's been on the periphery relevant again. I mean, not to say that you know, Renaissance masters weren't relevant, but they'd certainly fallen by the wayside in terms of what you know, people are talking about. You look at the art media landscape, even the art market, etc. attendance at museums, it's all focused around post-war and contemporary, maybe some impressionist and modern stuff. And that power to bring things together and recontextualize things in a way in which, you know, the kids of today will <laughs> think that it's cool. You know, whether it's big history or big art history is a really powerful tool
2: yeah, I mean, one of the things that Kelly Baum, one of the curators at the Matt Breuer, spoke about was the way in which making these comparisons brings work of the past into the present and allows you to see them as contemporary. And we'll we'll get onto the Breuer later, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think they pull that off. You know, seeing old masters in a brutalist space or a 20th century space, it does make you see them anew.
0: It kind of reminds me, I think it was the Biennale before last, that there was a the curator moved a Tintoretto painting into the Arsenale next to all these contemporary works. I might be misremembering that, but I think that that did happen because I saw it. <laughs> I was there. Um, <laughs> but it's cool that you can kind of see uh, this is kind of, there, there's there been some groundwork done in like smaller, smaller ways for this over a long period of time. And yeah, tying it into like postmodern theory,
2: there are numerous examples right. of older encyclopedic museums trying to shake up their collections with sexier, you know, younger. You Can we say jump? sexy
0: on the podcast? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Okay.
1: It's an interesting point you make, actually, about the last Biennale, because um, Massimiliano Gioni, who's um, at the new museum, but he he was the artistic director of that Biennale, which was kind of all about this encyclopedic palace, Mm -hmm. and how do you create an encyclopedic version of art history, which is very much a big art history idea, I think, in a certain sense. You know, he had a really interesting quote in Calvin Tompkins' piece in The New Yorker, kind of looking ahead to the Met's expansion to more modern contemporary art, um, where he had said something to the effect of you know when you're looking within an encyclopedic institution at how you present contemporary art, that's going to be a very different thing than if you're the MoMA, which is you know presenting just postmodern art you're just telling that incremental step of mm-hmm. you know how did this artist affect the next one in an encyclopedic institution it's much more important to make these large ties in order to even contextualize. Why you're interested in what's been happening in the last twenty years, when really you have millennia to deal with,
0: yeah, it's also always really exciting to see a work that's you know hundreds of years old but kind of looks contemporary like every time I see an El greco painting, I'm like this I this have, is yeah. so fresh, yeah. this like feels like it was painted by a twenty two year old last week, you know it's, I have the it's exact great.
2: same reaction to El Greco. he was completely radical,
0: yeah, love that guy. <laughs> Um, (laughs) (laughs) so I guess we're we're talking about the Met so the Met Breuer opened up on the 18th of March it's the new wing of the Met in the Whitney's old building and the debut show was called Unfinished which kind of looks and and you talk about this in your big art history piece it looks at over 500 years of art history it's met to kind of mix reviews i think some critics really liked it and some critics really didn't i don't think anyone hated it or anything i think some people felt like it was so ambitious because they got tons of work on loan from a lot of museums and they really put together something incredible and i think like roberta smith maybe felt like it could have been more dazzling whereas peter sheldell and the new yorker basically said you know get off my lawn stop complaining it's great <laughs> um so first off before we talk about what you thought about it Did you think it was an example of big art history done right?
2: Uh, I think it was an example of big art history. I think that especially because I was working on this piece prior to the opening, I had sort of had in my mind what I wanted to see from this exhibition, what I wanted to get out of it. So I was disappointed that there wasn't more integration of the older and newer Mm. works. The older works really... Separated on their own floor, the old masters uh, and then the 20th century works are on the top floor. and it that to me felt like a missed opportunity. There were moments where there were there was intermingling. Mm-hmm. you know there, for example, was uh, an unfinished Alice Neal painting on the same floor as late 19th century old masters right.
0: sorry um, just if it's, it goes without well it doesn't go without saying but the theme was unfinished kind of looking at work that either literally hadn't been finished or contemplated the idea of what it meant to be finished so you had a lot exactly. of paintings like an unfinished alice neal so uh, paintings that artist.
2: uh that were intentionally unfinished and also ones that were not finished because the artist in some cases the artist died or there was some other reason why it didn't get completed There were these really nice moments, for instance, on the fourth floor, there was uh, a Rodin sculpture intermingled with Louise Bourgeois and Robert Gober, and those moments felt really rich for me, and I just wanted to see more of that, and I think I went into the show, like I wanted to see Marlene Dumas next to El Greco for the reason, (laughs) um, and there, there wasn't enough of that.
0: Why do you think the Met chose not to do that? I mean, you can't get into the curator's heads, but...
2: I mean, honestly, I think there may have been a conservation issue here because the old masters were on a floor that was very dark. And I think it's a risk to put those paintings in a space with lots of light. The top floor, which housed the 20th century works, was very light. Mm-hmm is very light so I think maybe there was an issue there I also think it's just a riskier endeavor it's more difficult to make those juxtapositions and so it just it ended up feeling like the mat was going experimental and then playing it a little bit safe in the like end they
1: couldn't get out of their own way yeah certain exactly sense. so it ended
2: up feeling a little bit too linear in the end right right but I also think that it's sort of Surfaced perhaps a bit of a conceptual flaw in the show that they wanted to make this distinction between non finito works of the old masters, so intentionally left unfinished as a stylistic quality, and 20th century works, for example, process works like Lahir Clark's metal sculpture that is intended to be reconfigured by. An audience member, mm. I think the concept for me there were a little bit thin, but I think they felt the need to separate out those two those two concepts as distinct.
0: Right. And of course, there's like this meta, you know, art history is unfinished, kind of comment <laughs> that they're making. I think I like that. I'm, I'm into you yeah. Know.
2: I think too. There was a kind of a metaphor for what for this whole project for the Met that you know they don't quite know. I think where they're going with this new, expanded, modern and contemporary program, Um, and I think that they're sort of gesturing at this open-endedness to the whole project, perhaps.
1: It's also interesting, I think there's been a lot of fervor around the Met Breuer, but that's not kind of the end point for them. They're building out this, or aiming to build out this wing for, for modern contemporary works within the museum itself, and maybe there's just a little bit too much expectation put around them going into what essentially was a you know, very nice, but prefab... Air quotes there. <laughs> <laughs> prefab building and trying to get a start or a slight preview into what they might do down the line. I mean, their their engagements with contemporary art in the past have been relatively
0: maligned or... I mean, yeah, I wonder, like, having it in the old Whitney building with, with like, the ghosts of the Whitney's expectations there, you know, like, well, Whitney is, like, a very politically... Radical institution relatively and like their new space is so incredible and going back to the old building. Did it feel Weird did you sort of have like oh we're back here? And mm, it feel- I didn't
2: feel that way. I felt um, I felt like this is great. You know, this great. is great that this space is being used I think it's really interesting and unexpected to see a lot of the Mets works in there i i didn't feel like i was it was haunted by the vestiges of the whitney's exhibitions or something. unfinished
1: or jeff coons which would
0: you rather have? <laughs> uh
2: i think i'll go with unfinished yeah fair enough <laughs> um
0: and i like one last thing that i, I want to touch on is is the idea that we talked a little bit about big art history being part of a climate of looking back at art history and seeing who's been left out who should be recognized? All these other sort of important processes, but I think some of your criticisms of the Met show kind of remind us that big art history doesn't necessarily mean non-Western focus, or doesn't necessarily mean everything.
2: Um, I mean, ideally, it you know it's ex- these shows are expansive and inclusive in terms of making connections across space and geographies as well as time and that's also something that I felt was a flaw in the Matt Broyer show that they had the one non-western artist um they have a solo show of work by an artist called Nazreen Moh- Mohamedi, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce her name uh, an Indian modernist painter and it's a really beautiful solo show but it is sort of ghettoized is a strong word but it's it's siloed on its own floor and I felt that that was a real missed opportunity not to integrate western and non-western traditions especially because and and our reviewer of the show Meredith Mendelson, pointed this out there was so much press and hype around the Met expanding its modern and contemporary program to other parts of the world you know Sheena Wagstaff who's heading up this expanded Venture has hired on curators that are focused each on individual areas of the world and so this is intended to be a much more global project. And so just to launch, you know, with all that hype and then to launch this big show and have those those areas of the world separated felt like that was a, a bit disappointing.
0: Well, alright. If you wanna know more, check out Tess's big art history piece and our review. So Tess, Alex where will you be drinking white wine in the art world this week you can also be drinking red wine you know we're not we're not keep strict about it tess what are you looking forward to uh
2: so i'm going to be in london next week and i don't know if i'm going to be drinking wine there but i am going to be checking out the Whitechapel chapel galleries show electronic superhighway which i've been wanting to see i think it opened about a month ago and it basically is looking at digital art from namjoon pak onwards and i feel like i'm still waiting for a digital art survey that kind of hits it out of the park
0: digital big art history
2: (laughs) digital history and i love namjoon pak he's one of my favorite artists and so i'm excited to see jealous
0: you're going to be in england that sounds great alex
1: um, like I said, at the beginning of the show, I'm headed to Hong Kong on Saturday night, Sunday morning. We're also
2: jet-set. I yeah.
1: know. I'm the
0: only one not going anywhere. Well, you know, <laughs> you got to hold down the fort here. I yeah. think it's important. <laughs> the um, podcast must go on. <laughs>
1: so I'll be there all next week uh, reporting on Art Basel in Hong Kong, also just checking out Hong Kong in general. I think I'm going to manage a couple of days of, of personal time all over there. But it's my first time to Art Basel in Hong Kong. I'm really excited to see what they've done with it. You know, I've, I've been talking to... Mark Spiegler and the rest of the Art Basel team over the past few years about a lot of the the kind of changes they've made to what was originally Art HK, bringing a lot of international dealers, or a lot more international dealers to that fair, and really making it you know the the world's biggest art market event in Asia. So I'm interested to see how that plays out, especially you know with the with the economic jitters that we're seeing. Um, although I feel like the Art Basel brand tends to be relatively isolated from from those things.
0: Let us know if. Uh you see any impact of the the Chinese art market on the fair I will and we can follow up next podcast let's do that all right and I am I gotta say this looking forward to going to see the Met Breuer and the new exhibition when Peter Sheldahl you know shakes his fist at you and tells you to go go see some art
2: there's so much great work in there you'll love it. I know
0: I think it's just gonna be it's gonna be great I'm really excited about it all right. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks, Tess and Alex, for joining me here. Thanks to our very English, very helpful producer, Joe Sykes. And additional support was provided by our intern, Abigail Kane. Talk to you all next time.